Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Wanting to fly like Superman. Not letting bonds get in the way of pursuing your love. Getting attacked in the subway by pub crawlers. And what to do if you find an atomic bomb on your street. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Well, good evening, Tapsters, and welcome to another edition of This is Final Tap, the uh, podcast where every episode goes to 11. I'm your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, uh, performing the host duties tonight. And I'm here in the fabulous Benigaroon Saloon with our host, who's not hosting tonight, Doug Cooper. Oi! <laughs> <laughs> and coming to us live via technology, our co-host, Tony Slagle, who's likely in his grandfather's bass boat in a garage somewhere in South Austin. Uh, <laughs> neither, but okay. Hi, everybody. <laughs> You're neither in a bass boat or in South Austin. No, I'm in, uh, no in a ba- uh, or a closet. I am in South Austin, uh, God's country, but I am not in a bass boat or a closet. I'm actually oh, in, yeah, my, in an actual room. In a room. Yeah. Well, Good for you. You finally get snobby up. on us. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe his wife's back in jail. <laughs> And on this episode, we're going to be looking at a 1978 album by uh, a British band. Are they British? (laughs) (laughs) A British band uh, that goes by the name The Jam um, and their album Mm -hmm. All Mod Cons, which uh, is a British colloquialism. Uh, for all modern conveniences, I guess that was a saying back then. If you were about to rent an apartment, mm-hmm. or you got a refrigerator, you got a refrigerator and a, a range of some sort. No microwave. I think the microwave. Maybe an oven toaster. Yeah, that's what, that's what my wife included. Microwaves are included. My wife calls time. it uh, 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 an oven toaster. I say, <laughs> baby, you don't need to. You don't need to toast an oven. <laughs> <laughs> so uh our co-host tony slagle uh picked this album as you know we go through uh three we go through four rotations we we each get to pick an album uh one week and then uh the fourth week we let you the listeners decide but this is a tony pick so tony i'm gonna turn it over to you and ask you why do you think this is an album worthy of our tapster's attention? <laughs> Have you listened to this band and this album? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're wondering why I picked it, it's kind of self-explanatory. This it is this album, pop heaven, yeah, hits me right in my right in my sweet spot. I mean, it's poppy, it's loud. The songs are short and tuneful. The songs are, uh, to use words that Doug uses, accessible and irresistible for the most part. 
I mean, it hits me right in between my Anglophile eyes. You know, <laughs> um, when Doug asked, "Is this a British band?" This may be the quintessentially British band. At it's, least it's from hard this to era. find. A, yeah. Well, earlier this um, week, when I thought I might be hosting, one of my questions was going to be: We've had this discussion about who's the Britishest, and uh, the the two leading contenders were the Moody Blues and the, the Kinks. Kinks. Yeah. And well, I don't know that these guys didn't just out British everyone. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, they remind me. Uh, it's funny you mentioned the Kinks because they remind me of them in a lot of ways. I mean, outside of what we're going to talk <laughs> <What>? about. <laughs> no, hold on, hold on. I don't mean. I don't mean musically. I, I don't mean musically. I mean. Okay. I mean in the sense that the Kinks, uh, at least Ray Davies, has had and has he has adoration for his homeland. And, and embraces that in his songwriting. His songwriting is, a, I mean, we, we, when we were doing Village Green, the whole, I mean, Village Green Preservation Society is all about that. Right. And, yeah. and Paul Weller, the main songwriter for the jam, is the same kind of guy. It's one of the, the things. Same, they he, choose similar topics. It, it's one of the reasons that's, that makes this band, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why this band isn't a punk band, even though they came out of that scene. But that's one of the things that elevates them above that is that Paul Weller did not, dis, and the jam did not disdain the UK the way other punk bands did at the time. Yeah. Um, but it's also the quintessentially British in the same way that Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd was. And what I mean by that is this guy sings with a, British accent with a capital B. I mean, you can't you <laughs> yeah. can't shake the fact that this band is you well, know, is from both of them. Yeah. Both of them are really Britishy. Are you yeah. about Sid Barrett? Or? Uh, no, I mean both singers in the jam. Oh yeah, yeah. I was thinking is has there in the history of the universe been anyone who thought the jam might be an American band? It would I doubt it. It would have to be someone who's never heard an American band or a British <laughs> band. Well, and. And then the, my final reason why I think this is this is an album we're talking about is like the best albums from Elvis Costello and Graham Parker. It's full of it's full of urgency, urgency and energy, but it's smart and it yeah. has something to say and it's intelligent in the way it does it. And so I think all of those things combined are a reason why we should be talking about this band and in particular this album. This was it. People are going to go, oh, you picked all mod cons. You know, why didn't you pick another jam album? Because this is kind of the jam album. But I think the people that are saying that are likely not going to be U.S. listeners because <laughs> this mm-hmm. band did not have a whole lot of traction. In no, the US. I, I don't that was another one of my questions I was going to ask. Have we covered any band, any band or album? where it was so much more popular in England than it was in the United States? Oh, uh, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, this, I don't band th- was- I, this band was huge over there, and they just barely made a... I didn't hear about them until they were almost done. Right. You know? I mean, I didn't... I the, mean, right! Uh, <laughs> well, their their final album was number one in the UK, and and I, I don't know where... I think it charted in the US, but barely. So That, that was... That's kind of when I started getting, when I started knowing them was on when they had, when they were on MTV and they had Town Called Malice. That's one of my favorite songs from the 80s. And then, yeah, my exposure to the jam was, was very limited. I listened to them on, I saw them on MTV. And then, you know, when you're in high school, people come into your cars and they drop cassettes off and you, you're listening to them and then they forget all about them. So I had this cassette that was just nothing but the jam. And I think it was that greatest hits album that was released after they were they had broken up. I think it was uh, Snap. Is yeah, that that, is that what that a, is? That's yeah. I've got Snap over here. Yeah, so I had that 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 uh, cassette. Snap. I, I listen. I, I, I 
War of the Grooves off of Snap. Yeah, it's a great album. It's got... Um, then I discovered it was the greatest hits <laughs> later. <laughs> yeah, it I had... Thought, what a great double album. <laughs> yeah, so it had A Town Called Malice on it, and it also had That's Entertainment, which is another one of my favorite jam albums. But I didn't know anything about actual albums by the jam. I, I, I didn't... I mean, I knew that this album existed, but I didn't know very much about it until we were actually listening. And, you know, I was forced to listen to it over the, the last couple of weeks and, and forced is a, is a strong word. Well, and I, and I came to the jam in kind of a really roundabout way in that I discovered Paul Weller's solo stuff when his first solo album came out, I fell in love with it. And it's about as R and B as you can possibly get. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, it's, it takes all of the mod constraints out of that music and it's a pretty big horn heavy R and B album, which is an odd thing for me to fall in love with, but I fell in love with it. And uh, that album came out in 92, so I wasn't even really aware of the band until after that. But, of course, once I heard them, I was like, how did I not know this band was around? Um, At at my high school, you had to like the jam to be sophisticated and cool. The way I think of it is if you wanted to go beyond the clash, you had to go to the jam. And that would, like, if you were playing chess... If you're playing music chess against somebody and they moved to the clash and you could jump them with the jam. <laughs> I, I that's I want to I want to talk about that point for a minute, because <clears throat> the clash, I think, is really the it's the only punk band. And I'll you know call them punk because they were punk band that I think elevated themselves above that kind of constraint of what punk was when it first started. They got there eventually, but the jam out of the gate for a, for a bunch of guys that were as young as they were, yeah. were so much more sophisticated musically, so much more adept, yeah, adept at their instruments. Uh, the bass player is amazing, considering he took that instrument on late in life. Uh, but it to, is the bass, Tony. <laughs> yeah, but he the way he plays it, the way is, he plays it is very is remarkable. Yeah, it's remarkable. Well, how much are the are their influences responsible for? <laughs> I guess uh, if you're going to be a who a who fanatic, the bass is going to be an uh, important instrument, right? When, yeah. I to me, they're like a river, and you're paddling down this river, and all of a sudden you say, "What's this coming in here? Oh, this is the Kinks tributary." And you go a little further, oh, here's the Who tributary, maybe even a little Small Faces tributary coming in here and there. Their influences are easier to pick out than almost any band I think we've covered. Yeah, I I think one of the things that I've come to appreciate about them, and I think it's something I always have appreciated about them, they are very, very tight. I'm not sure that's something you could say about the Who. I'm not sure that's something you could really say about the Kinks. They are, but it's one of the tightest. You mean drunk? (laughs) Drunk? Oh. (laughs) Did we lose Tony? Yeah. No, I'm here. Okay. I'm not used to you being so quiet. I no, well well I, I'm doing that for trying to make the podcast <laughs> you got scolded. Better, you got scolded. <laughs> I'm trying to make the podcast better and shut my mouth. But they are they, if you listen to, particularly on this album, but if you listen to song they, they are just a incredibly tight band. And the, even though the bass is going all over the damn place and the drums are kind of yeah. you know but they are just the bass and the drums are right together. I want to say two things about that. One is I don't think anybody ever ever describe the who is a tight band i mean you got when you got the uh, well, you don't know who's drummer. setting the time yeah well when yeah that's my point you as you said so definitely when we were talking about the who is you've got a lead lead guitarist 
a lead singer, <laughs> lead a bass. lead bass player, and a lead lead drummer. And when you've got a drummer as loosey goosey as Keith Moon, their tightness is impossible. That's not yeah. to say they're not great, obviously, but the tightness is impossible. But yeah, it, it, it's I forget yeah. the other thing. I well, was they're say because I was rambling about that. But. Well, the thing is that the jam are not one bit sloppy either. And that's something that you could say. The Who could be sloppy. The the Kinks could be sloppy. The, the, the Clash, not really. The Clash are very rarely sloppy. But well, uh, I'll I tell you something to speak to the tightness of this band. I was changing out a uh, taillight assembly today. And to do that, I was watching a YouTube video. And you know how those guys go on and on. Click here. Make sure you say hello. And then make sure you do this. And they, So I had it set on... 1.5 speed so I could find out the one little bit of information I needed to get this tail light hooked up. Then I immediately switched to this record without changing the speed. <laughs> Those guys sound great <laughs> at 1.5 speed. I mean, I like the song both ways, actually. <laughs> but yeah, that first song must have lasted 45 seconds. <laughs> they, uh, James, well, there's a, they're they're uh, they're tight. They make a they make a big sound for three instruments. That's what I was going to say, Doug. Just real quick, is the tightness I think comes from that. I think when you're a trio, a power trio, or whatever you want to call them, I think that lends itself to being a fairly cohesive unit. Yeah, yeah I do too. Well, and especially as much as and, and Weller and, layer, layers his guitars, he has to have if, if he's going to. If you're trying to lay layer guitars on a, a sloppy backbeat it's it's going to be really difficult and uh, the other thing about this band that i noticed i didn't notice it growing up listening to them as much as i did now but they sing a lot two guys singing together yeah and yeah. It, it sounds like one voice when they do that and it, it's a very distinctive sound that i immediately would recognize mm-hmm. and uh, it makes you think of bands like the beatles or uh or the who when they do that, but it, it's a really distinctive sound. Well, it, I think you hit the nail on the head, this band. And, and I do think it's important to talk about them in context of the punk movement because they came out of that scene, but unlike, and, and this is something I hadn't ever put together or read about until recently about the UK punk scene and this whole idea of year zero. Are you guys familiar with that concept? that political concept i'm not well it's a it's a it's a it's a khmer rouge pull pot thing and it's essentially that everything that up to this you just wipe all culture and traditions away and you and and if you're going to be truly revolutionary you start from year zero and that's what bands like the sex pistols embraced you know we talked about that previously they wanted to destroy rock and roll and create right. whatever they were doing but it wasn't sustainable whereas the band the band like the jam they embraced the past in fact it's funny to hear them talk about how how much respect they had for all the pub rock bands in particular the um doctor oh, feel good Dr. Oh, yeah, Feelgood. that's right. Oh, yeah. I, I read yeah. that. Yeah, how much how much they love Dr. Feelgood. And Dr. Feelgood was a band that embraced R&B, but played it with a lot of a, a lot of energy and a lot of almost aggression. Yeah. And that's what that's what the guys in the jam, when they saw that, they wanted to embrace that. And when you think about them, I mean, I think they're more punk in their attitude than somebody like Elvis Costello or or you know, Nick Lowe or Graham Parker, but they come from that same, they came from that same lineage. They didn't look back on what came before and go, Ugh, 
They looked at back at what came before and embraced it and said, "I they want sure to as hell be did. part of that. <laughs> I want to be part of that tradition." Uh, you know, yeah. this album came out at the same time that when the Kinks had low budget, that was coming on strong again. Misfit, yeah, the Kinks were having a renaissance, and this is this is considered a mod renaissance. Uh, that they're, I guess, they're the leaders of it. I don't know very much about it. Do you guys know about this? resurgence of mod and we probably need to define mod and it doesn't well, mean modern conveniences no i mean the, the brits <laughs> maybe even more so than probably not maybe more so than the u.s like to define themselves by these subcultures that are defined by the music they listen to and the clothing they wear and their soccer teams yeah well outside of that so you know they call that football over there i do <laughs> I do. Um, but in the '60s, when the Who was were sort of elevated as these mod, as the as the mod, you know, lighthouse, if you will. Of course, we talked about the Small Faces having an issue with that. Uh, well, what, they didn't were, the name Small Faces wasn't that even a mod name? Yeah, I, it be- was. I believe it so. Is, yeah. So, but but yeah, this mod culture was all about dressing sharp. It was about listening to R and B. And dry, riding around on Vespas and scooters, and it was just Lots kind of, of rear view mirrors. Oh no, they and yeah. they did not look like punk rockers. They did no, look they much looked, more. Mod. They dressed a lot better than uh, <laughs> we do. But but so there was a there was Except a mod church. and a, a, a mod and a rocker rivalry in the '60s, and the rockers being the guys who were you know the look like Fonzie. I'm a mocker. Yeah, 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 a mocker. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, yeah, you're right. They looked like Fonzie. But in the in the uh, in the '70s, you had punks. You had rude boys which are the guys that i think embrace like the reggae and yeah and, uh, and the dub movement and, all and the that. dub stuff yeah and then you had this neo mod movement that the jam was so sort of at the forefront of and i think it's it's really interesting listening to paul weller talk about that and his role in that and how he looks back and says look i don't know I don't, he says this, I don't know if I encouraged us to be this, but we definitely embraced it in a way that when I look back on it, you know, I, I'm not sure I feel as comfortable as I, as I did then about <laughs> yeah. it. Well, tell Paul, but, um, <laughs> tell Paul Weller, all of us felt well, that there was, way. There was a, there was kind of a, a, something that was coming out of Britain at this time. You had the Vapors and. What a, what a great band. Yeah, they were, they were a great band. You're having band. the Vapors, Jim? Shoot, there was another band that was coming out at this time, the Buzzcocks. Like the Buzz, yeah, yeah the Buzz. Never mind. <laughs> the Buzzcocks were again. There was a very British sounding band. So were the Vapors. The Vapors were a pretty British sounding band. Except for they're turning Japanese. <laughs> they embraced something. What caused them to turn Japanese? <laughs> <laughs> But they, there was just a so there was this. I kind of lumped the jam in with with those groups where there there was definitely this sort of punk attitude that was there was still a steel. I mean, I think the Buzzcocks probably went a little bit more punk than um, like the Vapors or the Jam, but they all kind of embraced this Britishness, you know, when they were singing and and the guitars kind of reflected that. You know, the songs were short. The it was kind of this anti-Who move. I mean, even though the Who was mod, but the Who was getting into these really extended, long jams, and they were getting using embracing synthesizers. And then you had this this group that was going the, the, these groups that were going away from that, but were also not embracing punk as much. You know, they were still going. They're in that no man's land. You know that there was just that they were they were experimenting, but they were doing something new. Who, who I, do you um, guys think is the most 
what band is the closest to the jam of all the bands? Of all the what bands? The bands of that era? Any band. Oh, I want us to do the bands close to the same time. And then, I mean, if we start talking about bands I, that came before them, we're going to talk about their influences. I, you know what? I think I think London Calling London Calling era Clash is pretty close to the jam. That's what I was going to say. I don't because the cl- but the Clash the Clash had to get there. They had to move through their right. their first their first couple of albums to get to that point. Whereas the Jam came out of the gate, <laughs> kind of prepared uh, to do this. Yeah. But that's the first thing that comes to my mind. I think though that the the Clash at this point were embracing other music you know they were they were well they got the the reggae stuff yeah and the a, ska lot, stuff a lot a lot well that is that is yeah. that is a strange a thing difference. that you've got it it's it is a strange thing that you've got this band's third album and not a reggae sound to be heard on it yeah there's not a single there might be some ska stuff on it but there really isn't yeah i mean to me this is straight early who early i mean almost early beatles like like yeah yeah there's what a, am i what a, go ahead doug i'm sorry well um Nothing. <laughs> I was just going to say one of my favorite stories is I heard this guy saw this interview with this guy talking about Johnny Rotten, and John, he said this friend of his was talking to Johnny Rotten, and Johnny Rotten asked him, "This is in at this time." Said, "Who's your favorite punk band?" And the guy says, "The Jam." And Johnny's Rotten response was Johnny Rotten's response was, "The Who," which I think is hilarious. <laughs> Anyway, did he maybe. did he mean that on purpose or uh, I don't think I don't think so. But yeah. let me let me ask you guys this. So everybody said, I mean, the, you know, the thing that lumps these guys in with the punk movement is how aggressive they play. But are these people that didn't listen to early Who albums? Yes, yes, because I didn't listen to early Who albums. And, there's there's yeah. one time on this album when I hear the Sex Pistols, and well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but my, my point but is the rest that, of the time I'm hearing either the Who or the Kinks. I'm hearing sometimes the Beatles. Yeah, I hear the Beatles and sometimes the Small Faces. Yeah. When when my generation came out, which is what Paul Weller he, Paul Weller says he came to the Who late in life, and when he heard my generation, it was like the voice of God said, "You are now a mod," and he embraced <laughs> it. But right down to the haircut. Right down to the haircut. But when you listen, if you listen to the My Generation album. It sounds like this. It's aggressive. It's aggressive. I mean, yep. what maximum R and B is what they called it. Yeah. I, it's odd that critics heard the jam and thought and lumped them in with punk bands. I don't know. It was because that they were eighteen at the time and they were playing to other eighteen year olds. I just I don't get they, that. They had, I'm, I'm I mean, with you. I that's not what I hear. I mean, the drums are are very the drums and bass are very very aggressive. Yeah, and the, and the bass up in the mix. That's a punk. Deal. That's a punk deal. And but Paul Weller, I'm not sure I would call him by any stretch of the imagination a punk guitar player. Well, they have too many, too many of those times where it goes from arpeggio to a big chord. Yeah, just like yeah. Townsend would do. Yeah, I think it's impossible to play punk music on a Rickenbacker. <laughs> it, well, it should be. You, I don't think you can do it. I, I think, think, the, I think right. the guitar. I think a guitar would blow up. Yeah. <laughs> guitar. No, no, I'm not playing that. Nope. I'm gonna, all my strings <laughs> no. are going to break right now. You better play a, a augmented chord immediately. Have, have you seen my pickups? <laughs> Do they look like humbuggers? So I think another thing that happened to me with the jam where I, I, I didn't pursue them probably as much as I would have. And Doug and I, we've talked about this. When the, like I said, I came into, found the jam kind of late. In their career, they I think they broke up right after 
I fell in love with a town called Malice. That wasn't that had nothing to do with UJM. Let that go. <laughs> okay. But then they became uh, Paul Weller created the Style Council. There was something about that band that just didn't do it for. Me. I, w- I remember when they when he formed the Style Council. I was taking Rolling Stone at the time, and I was really hoping that it was going to be oh kick ass. Paul Weller's going to have this like he's going to do new. Gonna have some branch out, have some keyboards. He's gonna, you know, no, he's gonna do more stuff like Town Called Malice. But what happened was it be, he didn't dress down. He he dressed up. He started wearing jackets, you know, like double breasted jackets. And the, the, well, it is style council too. I know, I know. But it became this this thing. It was like this group. He became something that I would kind of group in with the, those other '80s bands like ABC. You know, like or, or even Rick Astley or something. There was just something I was just so disappointed by the the route that the the Style Council went. Faux jo- jazz chords and and all that, and it just it just didn't do much for me. And and really slick horns and I, I just I didn't. remember uh, when that album came out and you had to like it. It was or you weren't sophisticated. Well, see, I didn't like it. I didn't either, but I sure tried. I did too. Yeah, all my friends were making such a big deal about. Oh yeah, all my friends in college were just like they oh, were yeah. probably yeah. emperor's so, clothing. Mm-hmm. The, the jam had a connection with their fans in the UK, almost a religious connection in a way that a lot of other bands didn't. And when Weller broke the band up in '82, I read a story about a guy who burned he burned his jam memorabilia. Because he was so distraught. He just threw it in. I mean, it's stupid. This kid was a teenager, you know, sure, he did something but stupid. stupid. But he that's burned, that's he redundant. His, what? He burned his t-shirts, his yeah. posters and everything because it was like somebody had died, you know, and or had, had done something. You know, it was just anyway, the memory, the memory of the jam was too painful to think of going on without them. So he got rid he eradicated the memory from his life. That's how I felt um, when the Eagles zero. kicked out Don Hin, uh, Don Fadler. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway yeah and i'm also going to go back i think i gave style council a little bit of a short trip they they did do some interesting stuff and it might have been over i didn't like the production everything in the 80s was overproduced I, i'm gonna get in trouble for being condescending or whatever to you jm but you saying you don't like something overproduced is shocking to me <laughs> I would. I had this question: uh, Is there any history to this band? Now that we've now, now that we've already discussed their demise, yeah, uh, yeah, we can we can talk about that if you'd like. I've got a little bit of stuff. I'm, I'm um, trying to host. I know that was going to be my next question, but I'm glad. pretend well, JM so said that. I think I think one one of the things that makes this band made this band so great. That seemed made them seem like they came out of nowhere when they hit the hit the London scene was they formed in '72. So by the time they started playing live in London, they'd been playing together for a while. Now this yeah. iteration of the band didn't start in '72. I mean, it started in '72 when Weller and a school friend of his, Steve, Steve Brooks, started playing together. They were 14 at the time. They, their first gig was at a local working man's club, and they were playing old rock and roll tunes like Elvis or whatever. Eventually, Rick Buck, Buckler, who's the drummer of the band, joins them on drums. And for a while, they're a three-piece piece without a bassist. It was just two guitars, no bass. And that the thought was Paul Weller was going to be the bassist. They were going to switch him to bass since they didn't have a bassist. They were going to switch him to bass. His dad managed the band, which all the guys in the band talk about Paul Weller's dad like he was a saint. Yeah, like he did. He he went out of his way to get this band gigs. 
to, to try to make sure they were successful. He sounds like a really amazing guy. Anyway, uh, Bruce Foxton joins as a rhythm guitarist with Weller playing bass at the time, but he was not a very good rhythm guitarist. So somehow Paul Weller convinces him to pick up the bass and Weller went back to guitar. Now, I don't know. That's that, that was like the God speaking, because I think Bruce, Bruce Foxton is an amazing bassist. He's perfect for this but it's band. also pretty obvious that he did not start off on bass because he yeah. plays the bass like a guitar. But I, I was wondering, <laughs> Tony, um, is he in the pocket? <laughs> I, I, are there, know, are okay. there any pockets? Uh, let me ask you a question, because I know we had we've had at least one, if not more than one email say, can we have JM explain what the hell the pocket is since you guys talk about it all the time? So JM, <laughs> can you explain what the pocket is? Yeah. So when I say in the pocket, what I mean is you can't tell where the bass and the kick drum differentiate. Like they are always, they're almost always right on. And if the bass does do something, always comes back on the low note, hitting with the kick, with the kick. Example of that is like all the Motown songs. You know, it's very rare that the the bass player will ever, when the kick drum hits, he's always going to hit the one or he's going to hit the five or something, but he's just always going to be right on the the kick drum. Are are most of the famous bass players out of the pocket? A lot of... (laughs) (laughs) Well, you should ask this question. Is there, are there any famous bass players that are in the pocket? Um, I would say Tina Weymouth of the Talking Heads is almost always in the pocket. Um, Very famous. <laughs> I would have known that name immediately. Um, <laughs> let's see. I don't know. What do you, who you consider famous? Paul McCartney. Getty Lee. Getty Lee. I was thinking rare. of Getty Lee and uh, Ed Whistle. Ed Whistle. Ed Whistle. They're rarely in the pocket. I don't think Paul they McCartney. Have, yeah. Yeah. Paul McCartney doesn't like that pocket very no, much. No, Paul McCartney is not a. Les Claypool. Uh, Les Claypool, surprisingly, can be in the pocket. Jocko. Jocko. Oh, yes, Jocko. He's in the pocket. He's he's very much in the pocket. Um, mm-hmm. If you ever listen to him play, he is with those, those Weather Report albums. Yeah, he's right in there. That's funny. Well, well that's I, th- a fun I thank you. Pocket for- detour. No, I'm, I'm glad you did it because we have had people ask about it. So, what happens eventually is Steve Brooks leaves, which forces Paul Weller to take control of the band. And that's really when they coalesce around this kind of mod image, mm-hmm. start wearing suits. I mean, you think about it, that they, this band stood out, ripping up clothes and putting safety pins and stuff. And here's this sharp dressed guys with kind of cool haircuts coming up who know what they're doing with their instruments. I mean, that was that had been a pretty amazing sight when, when you saw them the first time, considering the, the rest of what was going on around there. Yeah. But so that's that ends up being the jam where, you know, the jam we all know and love. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's um, Paul Weller, Bruce Foxton and Rick Buckler. And this is the band that ends up having. From their first single, they have 18 consecutive top 40 UK singles. Now, how a band like that doesn't doesn't chart in the States is beyond me. But I mean, they were huge in the UK. So yeah, they were they were going gangbusters in in the UK. And it was just it's I didn't discover who they were until MTV came around and you know, a town called Malice came on. You know, they were like I had mentioned, they were sort of formed on the outskirts of London in in Woking, which is a suburb of London. Record executives weren't going out there to see them play. So they started coming into London and playing to try to get some attention. <laughs> as as we talked about in a previous episode, there was a gentleman who ends up signing them 
to Polydor by name, a band by the name of Chris Perry. He was their A&R guy. And he had missed out on signing the Sex Pistols and the Clash. And he was told by a young man who was in the scene at the time, but not in a band by the name of Shane McGowan, <laughs> that he should go down and check out this band at the Marquee Club called The Jam. And uh, he did. And he ended up signing them for 6,000 pounds, by the way, and and also producing them after that. So, Which brings uh, us to the part of our show that we like to call Connection. You don't have the We Have All Been Here Before. We have all been here before. We don't need before. to sing it. I have it. We have all been here before. <laughs> I think they before. like it better when we... I'm, we have all been here I tell before. you, I feel pretty confident going up against that crew singing that oh, song. Oh, you kidding me? The three of us could knock, yeah, knock out that, that out, harmony. Yeah. Who, would, who would be Graham Nash? <laughs> Love is waiting. He could do... Uh, you need to put him in the same band with Dennis D. Young. <laughs> Oh God! Really? Yeah, hold on, hold on a second. Hold on a second. That what? Graham, Na- Graham Nash was in the Hollies. Dennis the Young was in Sticks. Yeah. Well, you that's you can't you can't do that. I think the Hollies benefit from being in the British invasion and in, in the early members of the British invasion. But on closer inspection, they don't hang with the rest of the British. Movie. They don't, but Bus Stop's an amazing song, and there are plenty okay, of other one, songs. One good song. Well, okay. Era That I Breathe's not bad. No, uh, there are plenty of great songs. That What, what is the um, uh, King Midas in Reverse? That's oh, a yeah, fantastic song. Oh, yeah, that's a fantastic song. song. Yeah. So I okay. think you're wrong, Doug. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's happened before. Um, how much <laughs> does Graham Nash have to do with all those tunes? I don't know the answer to that. Well, there's, there's where we find... <laughs> separated right. ladies and gentlemen welcome to outtakes <laughs> <laughs> so do we have any besides that do we have any other uh connections for this song for this album well we we talked about some other bands that were from england yeah but that's not a connection not, not, really, a, not really a connection we, we've talked about bands from america <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> So they would not connect. Well, They're not. I, I think it's fair to say the Who's a connection because without the Who, you wouldn't have the Jam. Well, that makes the Kinks a connection. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. but we're usually looking for. We're looking personnel. for something better than that, yeah. and uh, not influences. I we're tell looking. you what, I came across zero connections. I couldn't find anything. Well, I, I don't know if this is a connection or not, but when the Jam goes into the studio to record their first single in the city, which. Another band records a song and a gentleman gets in a fight with Paul Weller by expressing his joy in having ripped the song off. And that band was the Sex Pistols Holiday in the Sun. (laughs) And we did talk about that album. Yeah. On a previous podcast. I think I just accused the jam of sounding like the Sex Pistols. Because of that song? (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry, Paul. (laughs) What's so funny is that Sid Vicious runs into Paul Weller in a club and says, hey, we nicked your song and headbutts him. (laughs) And Paul Weller puts Sid Sid Vicious in the hospital after that. (laughs) Good for him. Good for, yeah. 
probably wasn't that so, hard. And he said, he said, uh, look, I wasn't looking for it. And it's not much of a story and it's not something I'm proud of, but the guy started it and I was going to finish it. So, yeah. but, but yeah, uh, <laughs> there is that. That's so, a cool story. I like that. Story. Yeah. Paul Weller beat the hell out of. For ripping off a song that, as you could tell from those, it's well, an yeah. obvious ripoff. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I didn't know that. I I thought. Jam was being influenced by the uh, Sex Pistols. Sex Pistols. <laughs> well, I mean, Paul Weller did write that that song after he saw the Sex Pistols and the Clash, mainly because he just wanted to embrace the excitement that he felt, not necessarily musically, but just that it's really cool when you watch interviews of him, how much he really was just blown away by being an 18-year-old kid playing in front of eight other 18-year-olds. Just that whole idea to him was motivating in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And I think regardless of whether he saw the sex pistols and thought, this is the music I want to sound like he was just the, the fact that the crowd was energetic yeah. was what got to him, you know, and everybody um, bounced up and down back then. And just a, another kind of who thing that song in the city was actually the same, the title of a who song. It was a B side for the, I'm a boy single in 1966. So, well, that's, Probably the most impotent uh, <laughs> connection, connections we've had. We've yeah. had. Yep. Anyway, we can put that one in the record books. So were there? Okay. Uh, so before this album, there were what two albums? So this yeah, is the third so album. So there's two before two that. before that. Yeah. Okay, I got that. How that works? <laughs> well, and, and and people talk about, and the reason why it's important to talk about that is because, like I said, they come out of the gate with the single in the city. It's a top forty hit. They every single after that is a top forty hit. All eighteen of them. The album that comes out is the same title in the city. Um, it's essentially a way of them documenting their live set and it's a mix of originals and some r&b covers it hits number 20 on the uk album chart and uh all the critics were like this is this is the who this is the kinks you know they're and and oddly enough to um kind of re- reinforce that they do a version of the batman theme which was influenced heavily influenced by the who's version of that same theme song because the who also recorded a copy of the batman theme um, you can you sing line, that tune for us, uh, Tony? I can play it for you. Shall I play you the jam version of the Batman theme? That yes. sounds cool. That sounds good. There you go. <laughs> they don't make lyrics like that anymore. <laughs> that's funny. Well, the, the other thing we didn't really talk about with this band that sort of sets them apart was they're also, while they put out albums, they were also a singles band and they would release singles that weren't album tracks in between. And so they released a single between their debut and their, and their second LP all called all around the world, which is it reached number 13 on the UK single chart. It is simply a fantastic song. Anyway, just a just a great song. Yep. Um, That's uh that would be fun, fun live. It sure would. If you had if you were twenty something. Yeah. They end up 
going back in the studio, this was at a time we've talked about this before where bands would record multiple albums in a, in a single year. And so they go right back in the studio in 77, their, their debut comes out in 77. They come, come back months later and put out this modern world, which climbed to number two and went silver, but it had, it, it, it showed some issues. One is most of the critics just thought it was a rehash of their, first album which I, I that's always bothered me that critics have a problem with that i mean oh i love this first album oh the second album sounds just like it i don't like it the problems went a little deep deeper than that paul weller was actually having some trouble writing songs bruce foxton wrote and sang lead on several of the tracks on this and i think that was part of the issues with it the title track is is a great song Anyway, great, great song. But uh, like I said, the, and that song hit number 36 on the UK charts, but the, the critics weren't, weren't thrilled with the album. And so Paul Weller starts to write some new songs. He's got that in the back of his head. And he's, like I said, he's suffering from writer's block. As a result, the next single that's released is not one of his. It's a song that he didn't write. It was written and sung by Bruce Foxton. It hits number 27, but it's called News of the World. That's a good song, but you can you can tell that's a different sort of feel for the band. Oh yeah, right? it's, it's a little more punk. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so while all this is going on, they end up going on tour in the U.S. It's a, kind of a big this like we're going to introduce the band to the United States. They, Any idea who they opened? For? Yes, and it's the worst pairing you, you I could imagine. I could not imagine how they did this. Blue oyster cult. Oh, they toured America with a Canadian band. Yeah. Hey, Canadians, I want to apologize for JM if he said anything that offended y'all. <laughs> well, and we're talking about a band that's about as dissimilar from the jam as you could possibly get. I know it. Um, yeah. And it didn't go well. No, they're playing in front of huge crowds oh, yeah, that absolutely yeah. hate their guns. Yeah. How come only yeah. the, the songs only last? Minute and a half. <laughs> Where's the jam? Jam. Where's the cowbell? <laughs> I get all, do all these songs have Roman numerals in front of them. <laughs> go well, go they, Godzilla. They actually, they actually didn't tour with them for very long, thankfully. Mm. Who, um, who does but, these mismatches? I have no idea. It's, it's like so right, funny. It's, it's like, like uh, Hendrix and the Monkeys. Yeah. Well, if you if you recall, Joan Jett's band opened for Rush a couple of times. I don't think that's as off. That doesn't seem quite as off. There's two good bands. I could could dig that. Yeah. I wouldn't be disappointed if I... Joan Jett could sing one song about Middle Earth. (laughs) (laughs) I could see her getting up on stage and see Temples of Spirinix or whatever that is. Yeah. Um, Anyway. She could um, do a Stonehenge. (laughs) The... um, the thing that the thing that is a 
it's not it's not really all for naught this going to the U.S. because what happens is Paul Weller discovers that there are Kinks albums he hasn't heard, the, yeah, that he has he has no idea about. I was going to let you talk about that, Doug, if you wanted to. That's, I said everything I know about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, because and, they had different releases in the states back then, they a lot of those bands. In fact, even this album that we're talking about tonight had a different release. But yeah, back then they, it was hard to tell the American uh, release versus the the British release, and there was just a lot of uh, there was albums by the Who that just didn't exist in England that were available over here. Well, and I, and the reason why the kinks are an important part of the jam's DNA is because I think twofold, this is not only my opinion, but I think this really kind of leads us into this album we're talking about tonight. The first thing is that Paul Weller starts to understand that you can write songs that are character driven and there's lots Mm -hmm. of character driven songs on all mods con Mm -hmm. all mod cons. Um, The other thing I think that it helps is he understands that you don't have to, you can make a more powerful statement, whether it's political or otherwise, with precision rather than blunt force. So he starts writing songs that are political, have a political bent to them, but they're intelligently written. They're not they're imaginative. In the UK. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're yeah, imaginative. You know? Yeah. We'll get to one of those songs later. And so from from this point forward, once he gets back from his tour, his songs start taking on that that cast to them. And it's and and when he does get political, it's more nuanced than us against them. It's kind of a more worldly view, which, again, is amazing considering how young the guy is. He's what, 20, I guess, 19 or 20 when they're recording this album. But is it? I'm glad nothing I said in my 20s is on tape. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't I don't think I don't think there's really anything to be ashamed of on this third album in terms of his approach to stuff. I mean, I think his approach to English leaves something to be desired. We'll get there too. (laughs) Oh, I know. I know which song you're going to talk about, but I I think, I think that that song has so many other merits to it that you could disregard that. Um, Anyway, we'll get there. Okay. Anyway, and then and then we talked about this already. He gets this. Uh, he's got this thing in common with Ray Davies or Davis, as they say over in the other uh, across the pond, yeah. uh, with this uh, abiding fondness for the UK and English culture. Like this is something that he brings to the table now. Anyway, he ends up getting a whole fresh batch of songs. And that gets us to this album, which is uh, not produced by Chris Perry. He's actually sought, sacked during the initial sessions. Yeah. And Vic Coppersmith Haven, who was the engineer for those first couple albums, ends up producing this album. Yeah, and you know, oddly enough, we've, he he was not he's not a very he was known more as a sound engineer, but he actually has uh, worked with the Vapors. That was mentioning them earlier. Is he, who else has he produced? I don't think many other people. I, I really don't. I, I I tried to do some background as a producer. I'm always interested in who's producing the uh, the the album, but I, I I could not find much. I found him as a sound engineer, but not much other than uh, getting co-production credit on the Vapors nuclear days. Mm. Anyway, that uh, essentially brings us as a brief history walkthrough, through, very quick walkthrough through the Jam's first couple albums and, and yeah. their history to get us to where we are now. So yeah, that brings us to the album. Uh, let's just do a real quick, kind of mention these guys in passing. Paul Weller is the guitarist, singer, main songwriter, and he also does the keyboard. Bruce 
Foxton on bass, and he handles uh, a lot of the co-lead vocals as well and the harmonies. And then you have Rick Buckler, who's on drums, and he doesn't sing. He just plays. So and he sh- he certainly does play. He plays quite well. As, as much as he's playing, I don't see how he could sing because he would, be, <laughs> he would be knocking the microphone all over the place. He would not be able to catch his breath. Yeah, when you watch videos of these guys at this time playing live, it is nothing but just a blast of energy yeah. coming off that stage. It really is. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. How many how, how much cymbals are there? There's a lot more toms than there are cymbals I on this. I was trying to think. I, I don't think I heard too many. Yeah, not too many. I heard there's some hi-hat, but... You give them the hi-hat? Yeah, I'll give them the hi-hat. Well, we're talking about an album that came out 16,063 days ago <laughs> okay <laughs> point being <laughs> we've never done that before i thought that'd be fun a, a, uh and with the i don't know if y'all know about this internet thing but you can find out almost anything <laughs> it came out november 3rd and that's just a few days away just like last week yeah we were just a couple of days ahead of when jjkl came out that's true yeah. oh that's cool so yeah. maybe there's a pattern in our yeah, selection yeah. all right so let's start diving into the album First song on side one is the title track, All Mod Con. Can can I just say before we get into this, is that not the most who-esque vocal ending ever? <laughs> I mean, that ending, the way they move up on that, the yeah. harmony moves up at the sound. I mean, it, there's going to be a lot of that. Tonight. Yeah, there is. But it's so that particular point, I cannot, I can't. First of all, it's a minute and twenty seconds of greatness. Yeah. Um, and I cannot listen to that song and hear that ending and not just smile every single time I hear it. If it's it's inc- uncontrollable, I have to do it. It was such a, yeah, it was, it was a very nice song to, to begin. I'm, it, it instantly grabbed me. It inst- instantly made me want to listen to the rest of the record. And maybe because it's so short as well. Oh, and it's, it's such a thoughtful thank you to the record company. <laughs> 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 well, I, look, I get, I get it. You know, it's, it's, it's about all the phony baloney love that a record company gives their artists with yeah. really. They they don't give a crap about the artist. Dingo's ass. Yeah. Know? Another thing I like about this song is it's got a bass solo in it. All oh, be it brief. It's so yeah. Good. yeah, it's a great I one. Mean, it, there's it, another the bass comes the new, right? out of the shadows finally. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it's a it's a fine yeah, song. A fine, lot of energy, a lot of energy, and very very tight. It is a very they are so tight on this song. They don't have enough time in the song to get away from each yeah. other. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, for a you know a minute and twenty seconds, there's a a lot that happens. You got it's you know, a, yeah, you know, who, yeah. three second bass solo. You got uh, <laughs> <laughs> the guitars are very pretty intricate. It's a little bit you know it's got some sophistication to it. It's as got well. keys in it. Yeah. It's got keys on it too. Yeah. Who's um, playing those? Paul Paul, Paul Weller. Because uh, I noticed in the credits, no one's mentioned, but there are well, a couple it, of songs where they Waller. pop up. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I'm not questioning team. y'all. Yeah. No way I'd ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, are we ready to move on to the next song? To Be Someone. Someone must be a wonderful thing. A famous footballer, a rock singer, a big field star. Yes, I think I would like that. 
This is a song about, uh, it's basically an ode to wanting to be someone badass, but not actually wanting to put forth the effort. <laughs> That's the I, way I took away Yeah, from. I mean, I can't tell if he's, to me, it seems like he's making up, he's making fun of the idea that you're not someone until you uh, qualify as someone in one of four yeah, areas, yeah. Uh, like football, which means soccer, yeah. and a music star or a, or a uh, movie star. Yeah. I saw this as being a little less of a, I saw this as just a, a song about it, uh, having fame and then losing it. And then pontificating on that because huh. they should have written it later. <laughs> <laughs> well, and at least from from my point of view, and if I'm wrong about that, what it's about, it it adds a little. A, there's some depth to the way the way he sings the very last. Well, to I be think you're right. Must be that it's, we had so much fun, or what, whatever they're saying. It, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's definitely about what you said. Yeah, because if you listen to the way he sings the very last "To Be Someone Must Be a Wonderful Thing," there's a wistful quality to it that he that isn't in the other times he sings it. Right, um, and and I think that's fantastic. You know, I think that's a really at kind of something that. Yeah, there, uh, the thing that I I took it as a guy like, yeah, I could have been somebody. I, I uh, could have been a contender. Right, right. Then he says, but but didn't we have a nice time? Hey, we could have. Well, I could have been. It's weird as, because it yeah. sounds like he was somebody and then he wasn't somebody. And I think that's what he. Somebody. I think that's the deal. He was somebody oh, yeah. and then he wasn't. I think yeah. that's who the, the character in the song was somebody and then he lost that. <clears throat> yeah, I have to comment on. We heard a little bit in that clip yeah. that guitar. <sighs> The guitar, guitar that kicks in right before the second verse mm-hmm. is so fantastic. He's got that riff going through it, and then he has that counter melody that's going on with it as well. It, it's it's a very intricate song. I'm I'm really the guitar work on it is is pretty remarkable. It's going to be a theme throughout this. Yeah, this this band knows what they're doing. Yeah, and his the guitar solo is it's almost a guitar solo. It's not quite a guitar solo, right? Yeah. Well, I was going to add a question for Doug. Uh-oh. How do you feel about him writing rhyming call with uh, with pool? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Listen, I gave you a huge huge pass when we were talking about uh, surrealistic pillow. So, for you to start talking about lyrics on this album, you you got a lot of nerve, buddy. So, that's why you asked me the question so you could call me up. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I I'm don't know. Con- I, I'm being condescending again. I I'm, I'm gonna. These guys are gonna be between. They're gonna be right at fifty. They're not. They're not horrible lyrics, and they're not fantastic lyrics. But this kind of music, a little bit like JJ Kale, I I hold different types of music to different standards on on uh, lyrics. Yeah. So these guys are about pumping out a lot of energy for a club, and mm-hmm. you can't sit there and say, oh. The difference to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, you're not looking to... I mean, the lyrics are almost buried. It, it's hard to... Especially with their uh, Cockney accents. You know, it's it's really kind of difficult. Or at oh, least have, for me. They have accents? <laughs> you know, I was accused of that once. Yeah. <laughs> Still hurts. Still hurts. All right. Moving on to uh, the third song, Mr. Clean. Cause I don't ever want to catch you looking 
I really like that. This is one of my favorite songs on the album. That opening riff is almost sinister, and it's got that bass playing those uh, those eighth notes, thudding eighth notes. And it's got, but then it kind of breaks into this nice little. I guess it's the chorus, just but actually becomes melodic for a little while, and but it doesn't last long. It goes right back into that kind of sinister sounding stuff. But it's a really good song. It does a lot with it in a very short period of time. Lyrically, it's interesting because I can't tell if Paul Weller is, you know, commenting on the narrator in the song who seemingly has an issue with these these guys who have made it for no other reason than they've made it. Yeah. Or if he if he agrees with that particular point of view, I, I don't think I don't think he does. I think that's I think that's the point here is that he's, you think he's. So, you think he is, com- this song's commenting on the person who's commenting on Mr. Clean? I, I don't know. I don't know. Because this was inspired by when he would he would commute back and forth from his hometown and he'd see guys like this. I don't know. Maybe he does feel. I would like that- it better if he were commenting upon the guy who's commenting upon Mr. Clean. Otherwise, the only- it, comes yeah. in, it comes in number 12 on my favorite songs on the album. <laughs> Well, I because I, I I I I'm so tired of the anti-bourgeois poor guys getting up busting his bun to okay. But remember, this is 1978 England, and he's how old when he's writing? No, no, I I understand being stupid at that age because yeah. I was, but that doesn't mean I'm gonna dig it. Yeah, I I don't know. The only reason I feel like maybe he's looking at it a different way is because of some of the other songs on the album and the point of view of those songs, which are yep. a little bit more blatant. Well, um, I, I'm, I'm confused like you. I don't know if he's commenting on the guy commenting on Mr. Clean or if he's commenting on Mr. Clean. If he's commenting well, I, on the guy commenting on Mr. Clean, this is a sophisticated song, for especially for someone that age. If he's, if he's making fun of Mr. Clean, he just becomes one of those people who... Those guys are so judge. They spend all their time judging people right. they consider judgmental, and and the judgmental people haven't even considered them, but they well, feel judged that's... by them. That I mean, I get tired of that. I yeah. I, I think it's tedious, especially in punk rock where they're so busy being anti something else. But the reason why I think that's the case is because of when he gets to that point about don't look at me and the guy gets violent just because the guy's looking at him. Mm-hmm. And then again, when you took it in context with other songs like Billy Hunt, yeah. which is a definitely poking fun at the guy who's singing. I, I just think that maybe I, that's the thing about these songs is I think there's sort it's, of multiple. It's multiple a lot of ambiguity. And I yeah. really I really hope. That your interpretation is the correct one, because well, I don't if, know if it is or not. I'm not uh, sure if he knows. Because outside, was, of, yeah. it couldn't have been that sophisticated. I maybe. don't know. A lot of people are smarter than we were. That's true. I, well, again, look at some of the other songs on the album, and his point of view on them are very far. At what we, I would consider far ahead for a twenty-year-old guy, especially from yeah. being ensconced in that scene he was in. It's not um, Johnny Rotten. No, it's not. I mean, and he's when you listen to him interviewed, he's he's. Not an idiot. I mean, and know. he was in style council. Yes, he was in <laughs> stylish. I, I just want to say one thing about it. Um, musically, it's it's an it's an odd song for this album. I get what you're saying, Jam. It's there's a lot kind of interesting to it, but it's it feels different than anything else on this album to me. Yeah, I can see that. It's jerky. It is jerky, and but I I just 
I love his vocal delivery. I love the, you know, I, y'all get into lyrics a little bit more than I do. I, so I'm a little more forgiving than that. But I, I the music in it is is pretty sophisticated. And just, um, yeah, it's just one of those, man, I wish I would have come up with that riff. So, <laughs> all right. Moving on to song number four, which is actually a cover by who? No. The Jam. <laughs> the cover's by The Jam. <laughs> the cover's by The Jam, but it's a cover of... The Kinks. The Kinks. And you can't go wrong covering The Kinks. David Watt. That's funny that this is a cover because it's one of the most jam sounding songs <laughs> really on is. the record. If that don't get you going, I don't know what. I know, and friends. I <laughs> normally I don't like it when people cover the Kinks because the Kinks usually do justice to their own songs quite well. But this this is brilliant. I think they did it. It's a great, great cover. It is a great cover. It's a great cover, and uh, it takes nothing away from the Kinks cover. No. I mean, it's, no, it actually know, adds compliments a bit to it. I think so. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, I went back to listen to the Kinks sing it, and you go, "It's it's more gentle, and more yeah. nuanced." Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of, of course, Ray, Ray Davies' voice is capable of more fluctuation. Yeah, and there's the well, piano all over the Kinks version. And it made me appreciate their version even more after listening to it. But it, and again, the Kinks version didn't take anything away from this version. It, it makes me wonder who, where "Let's Spend the Night Together" came from. <laughs> that's that is <laughs> oh, a pretty wow. precise still. Wow. It does. Huh. That's that's a bullseye. Uh, I wow. think you sank their battleship, Jim. <laughs> Good job sinking their battleship. Yeah. Um, anyway, here comes, uh, the hate. here comes the hate. No, 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 no. So this was this was a result of them hearing those Kinks albums yeah. in the, on in the U.S. Yeah. This this yeah. version of this song. It was released as a single. It, the band didn't want to release it as a single. They wanted to release Billy Hunt as a single, and the record company said, "No, this yeah. is the single." Yeah, and the record it, company it, was right. They got it. Hit number twenty. It hit number twenty-five. But going to what you said about Ray Davies' voice, Doug Paul Weller doesn't sing this. The bassist Bruce Foxton sings lead because it was in the wrong key for Weller to sing it. Well, wrong. he does a good job he does on a it. Perfect job. Does a great job. Yeah. And it, this this reminds me of a connection. Yeah. We had yeah. another band about this same time that. Had great success with the Kinks tune. We have all been here before. Oh, we already did that. Um, who was that? Oh, you guys, come on. It is time for oh, you to stop. Oh, the Pretenders, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I think yeah. they got, I think Chrissy Hine got closer to Ray Davies. Than- I, I don't, yeah, I don't think Paul Weller ever slept with uh, Ray Davies, but man, what do I know? Maybe he I, did. Maybe he did. What do we know? Anyway, it's a fantastic cover. It, it is so good. Very good. Very, very good song. Very. Make you jump out your seat. They, they made it so jammy. Yep, they really did. All right. Moving on to the next song, a beautiful song, English Rose. Turn to my English rose for no bonds can ever tempt me from she. I sailed the seven seas, flown the whole blue sky, but I've returned with haste 
So there's no way the Clash or the Sex Pistols have written a song like that. No way. The Ramones come out of this. The Ramones. The Ramones. No way. No way. Yeah, and you know that he song title him. Huh? No way that him what? No, no. (laughs) Doug's making fun of the she thing at the end of the she. Okay, Yeah. yeah. Um, Take me away from she. He's, he, that's his issue. I knew this was the song you were talking about. Yeah, that is a pretty agree. Even when I listened to it as a in high it school, it doesn't bother me. An iota. I, yeah. This song is. I love that this song. Speaks so poorly much. of your English teacher. This is a, I, a you know on a personal. This was when I would my girlfriend in high school. This was the which, one like so- that one girlfriend. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> what is he talking about? <laughs> a girlfriend, my junior and senior year in high school. Um, no, what in the winter time, and then a different one in summer. <laughs> I'm calling you out. Uh, yeah. Hope she's not listening. Anyway, we um, this is this was like the one song that we could bond over because I, I would play the song. And she she was all into Triumph and all these. Even, even though no bonds would keep you away from she, bonds would keep me away from she. I this song, it was it's a, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal Doug's thunder. This is a song that I immediately want to play again when I hear it. I love this song so much. I, I, I want to call him up, and ask him to please re-record it. Yeah, she's not rhyming with anything. It's not necessary. You can. Yeah. Turn it to her, and everything will be fine immediately. Yeah, I know. But so, I, I got to tell you about the article I read, where okay, some some horrible blogger <laughs> woman says, "As a woman who's been objectified her whole life, I am so pleased that he decided to insert the subjective in this song to lift her up." And what the what? hell does that mean? Well, she's. <laughs> I still haven't cleaned up the pile of vomit that came out of my mouth after I read that, but it's so stupid. It's one of the most, it's just. It's the objective. Yeah. They're using the uh, subjective tense in the objective case, and she's saying that he did it on purpose to lift women up and. and it's just, this is 1978, and he's 20 years old. I and don't think people that was, weren't. Yeah, people weren't. I'll tell you, sensitive. Yep. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though. When you want to talk about various depths to what he's doing here, I mean, he's not just talking about his girlfriend. This song. I mean, he's this song is about England as well, which I think is pretty amazing. I mean, he's homesick when he's writing the song. He's in the UK thinking about. I mean, the US he's in the United States yeah. listening to um, Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah. yeah, and so so <laughs> the fact that he writes he writes well, first of all, the fact that he writes a beautiful love song. It's yeah. funny he was embarrassed by this song, mm-hmm. and he well, also didn't uh, think that the, the, the you'll love this, Doug. He didn't think the lyrics were worth a damn without the music. So they left off the initial album. They left the song off the album right. and the lyrics yeah. off of it. Yeah, it does not appear anywhere on. On the album cover or on the right. record label. I mean, there's... Right. they didn't have Grammarly back then. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the fact that this is a, a straightforward love song about a girl, obviously, but deeper than that, it's about his love. I mean, his like I said, his affection for. I his return homeland. with haste to where my love it's, does lie. It's yeah. really for a twenty-year-old. That's a pretty, pretty. No, I think it's a, a, pretty it's cool a beautiful deal. song. I, it's on par with some of the stuff that Dylan. I, I think that Dylan was writing. At, at that age, well, I'm going to hop off that boat. I know, but I, it's it's just I I think it's 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 almost a folk song. Fine. I thought well, it was it a, yeah, and um, I mean, if you told me that this was a cover from 
you know, the middle ages, I would have bought it, you know? I, well, and it's one of the few songs he still plays live. And if you listen to, it's really, I, I love Paul Weller's voice now yeah. and hearing him sing this song. And it's not, it's not as, as quite as gentle as he was here. He's got some of that soul inflection going into it. Yeah. It's really a, a whole different experience, but it's fantastic. Well, you know, I do it, like the way his voice sounds like an imposter on this song. Yeah. You know, another thing going big into the Who, it's got all those C sounds and everything, like yeah. Quadrophenia. Well, speaking of the mod. <laughs> yeah. Was that a mod album? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it, it was one of my favorite songs in high school. And um, it it's. And you used to listen to it with She? With She, yeah. <laughs> my, da- my daughter is like, Are you listening to the song again, Dad? I was like, Yes. <laughs> I'm listening to yeah, it again. I hope. I hope you explain to her not to talk that way. Yeah. You know what? She could sing the song all She's going she to go to college. It does not and bo- doesn't bother now. me at all. <laughs> all right. Moving on to the last song I, on side one. I don't want to move on, but I guess I we've know, got we got to. I know, we got to, yeah. In the crowd. To me, sonically, this is the most interesting song on the album. It, it's got... Was this on Mods and Sods? <laughs> no. L- let me tell you something. That bit we just played, when he gets to that that part that goes, uh, that life yeah, simply yeah. moves along, Yeah, it sounds like Johnny Thunders off of... Village Green. Yeah. yeah. And you're yeah. not the only one that thinks yeah. that. <laughs> it's so, I was like, I, every time I hear it, it's like, that That had to have been intentional, right? Well, what, did you see some windmills also on the guitar chords? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I heard a lot the of The guitars windmills. on this song are just fantastic, and they're, they're incredibly interesting. And then at the end of it, you know, it gets into that, it's almost a jam. It's like the last well, two minutes. And then a tape loop at the end? Yeah. I don't know if it's a, oh, yeah, yeah, that, it's, it's uh, backwards guitar. That Beatlesque yeah. pseudo psychedelic yeah, outro. Was, uh, yeah. Where's my Revolution album? <laughs> yeah, I mean Revolver. Excuse Revolver. me. And there's twelve string in there, and there, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's an interesting song. I I could it, these last two songs on the album are just I could listen to both of them over and over again. Yeah, this is easily one of my favorite songs on this album. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's so great. And, it, you know, it's in, it was inspired by him walking around a, gr- a grocery store. Uh, he's using this idea of shopping as a metaphor for people's kind of mindless subversion to corporate pressures or whatever you want to say. Yeah. But what's really cool about it, again, I just I, I know Doug has got an issue with the lyrics, but there's a part in the song where he's talking about he, 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 this kind of double meaning of the word change. And he says, and everyone seems just like me. They struggle hard to set themselves free yeah. and they're waiting for the change. So in a grocery store, obviously you're waiting for the change, but that means something more there, right? And then and then he circles back around to it and says, "And life is life just simply moves along in simple houses, simple jobs, and no one wanting for change." So that again, change there is like the same change of oh, some change in the in the system or whatever. But I don't know. I just think I think it's really really pretty amazing how he does that. Um, wow, I didn't. Yeah, I never, I never noticed that. But man, just changing that one word from yeah. waiting for to wanting for, and he's talking about how people are are just satisfied with what they have, so they're no longer really looking for that. That wow. change. He's you know. talking about what happens when you go from his age to yeah. ten years later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But 
He doesn't know that yet. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But it is a great song. It's the most, you know, I hate to use the word produced, but it is, it's the most layered. It's the most interesting. That's true. Well, you know, Paul Weller talks about how he really struggled with doing that to their songs because he really wanted to just to sound like they did live. He's like, you know, and then uh, then he makes this comment about how essentially doing that is what the jam sound turned into. Well, that was I I think that this is what led him to uh, leave the jam. This this ambition for broader sounds. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I really brought everybody down. (laughs) All right. So we are going to flip the album over. I'm not going to say flip her over. <laughs> Flip she over. <laughs> <laughs> and the first song on side two is Billy Hunt. You know, Tony, if you were to ask me what your favorite song on the album is, I would have said this one. I mean, no, it's, it's not. It's, it's almost not. a punk song, and it's got the hand claps in places. I, I do love the song, but it's not my favorite song. I know a lot of people get tired of. I, I've, I've read a lot of people say they hate it because it says Billy Hunt so much. But, it does say Billy Hunt a lot. But, yeah, but doesn't it, that seem like uh, one of the names that you would tell somebody to announce so that you and your buddies <laughs> could go? <laughs> Well, you, somebody said that it was, uh, they wonder if it was intentionally trying to rhyme with something else, silly something else. Because huh. the guy, the character in the song is obviously that, right? Yeah. I mean, he's so puffed up with his own self-importance, but also his own self of, his so sense of victimhood as well. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, it, this is the one that I thought sounded like the Sex Pistols at the beginning. It's the most punk song on the album. It is. And well, other than the fact that it references the six million dollar man, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where did we that can come rebuild from? him. That was a big deal back then, don't I you? Know, remember? It was sure huge. Was. Yeah, I remember watching the the opening episode. My dad got me all pumped for it, and that yeah. little tiny space shuttle thing crashed. Yeah, there was a. It was based on a a book, and then they made the book into a pilot. They had to do like three pilots, and they turned it all into one. You um, remember? When he ran, the noise it made? Yeah. <laughs> what about when he was looking at somebody? Yeah. <laughs> and then I had the I six had million was... dollar lady, she could do her ear thing <laughs> oh, yeah. and she got. <laughs> I had We're back in those... sleigh stack territory. I've had one of those six. I had one of those Steve Austin dolls. <laughs> oh, I yeah, kid. I did too, where you could look, look through, through the, the eye. eye yeah. and you could pump his arm up and take it. Of course, his, arm his apart. eye was looked totally not like an eye. Dun, 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 dun. And then you could put him in his spaceship, and his spaceship was oh, yeah. Looked yeah, absolutely it was, it was also table. an operating table. That's what a, right. a crock. <laughs> well, we were starved I liked, for entertainment. I liked, I liked uh, Lee Majors. He had that kind of oh, Welser. Yeah. He, it, it's yeah. like every sentence, he'd start out with Welser. Yeah. Welser. And, and look at you with one eye squinted. Yeah. With the, I'm being honest with you. And then they you, jumped uh, the shark, and they had to... He had to go fight Bigfoot or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I love, I love that though, man. That was a great episode. Where <laughs> you know, Bigfoot you know who, was an alien. Do you know who that was? <laughs> it was a robot played, alien. No, it was probably Bigfoot. No, who no, played? somebody from Land of the Lost, probably. <laughs> no, it was Andre the Giant. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah. 
I remember Stephanie yeah. Powers was on it, and I thought she was hot. And... Remember, Ma- remember Maskatron, the guy who oh, yeah. like, put different people's faces on? Yeah, it was played by John Saxton. Right? Or, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's such, that was such a great show. Yeah, great... He was the $7 million man, right? Uh, I think so, yeah. yeah. Can you imagine guy, what yeah. one of those men would cost nowadays? <laughs> 9% inflation? I know, that's a day in a... <laughs> That's a day in the hospital now. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's a a kidney transfer. (laughs) Anyway. All um, right. So so uh, what what album were we doing? Yeah. So this song was what the band wanted to be their hit. And it was, uh, oddly enough, the fate of it was it was removed from subsequent U.S. releases and replaced by a song called The Butterfly Collector, which I I was going to play unless you guys don't want me to play play it. Play it because I've been curious about it. So this song was replaced by um, Butterfly Collector, which is essentially about groupies. Something we know a lot about. Um, uh, Oddly enough. Just a face on the pillowcase. The the thought there is that the U.S. label thought that the American audience couldn't relate to the character in Billy Hunt. They could more readily relate to this guy talking about how much he hates groupies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, that makes it, it, the average American has so many groupies. Yeah, yeah, they understand groupies a lot more. Here at uh, this is Vinyl Tap, we are overwhelmed with groupies, <laughs> as most Americans are. Yes. All right, moving on to the second song on side two. It's too bad. That sounds like a hit to me. It sounds like a hit to me too, and it's also the most Beatlesque song I think on. The That's album. my favorite. This is my favorite song on the album. I would have guessed that after. <laughs> after uh, uh, you know, you know who I heard. Who? No, it was the Pretenders. <laughs> I can see that. It was like arpeggio, arpeggio chord, arpeggio, yeah. arpeggio chord. It sounded like a Pretender song a lot to me. You know the the riff that goes through it. Sounds like uh, George Harrison, uh, She Loves You, to me. That, but uh, yeah, it's a a fantastic song. It's the the closest thing to a straight power pop song on the album. And the two singers together. Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing is is almost entirely harmony. Yeah. The the, the best they sound together on the whole album. I think you're right, yeah. And... uh, it's got the bass on it is superb. It is so. It's also yeah. at the top of the mix, yeah. which is so true for so much of this album. Yeah. So are the drums though. Uh-huh. I, this is one of those songs where if for anybody who thinks the jam was just Paul Weller, they need to listen to this song and realize how yeah. much of a misstatement that is. That is very much a misstatement. He uh, he's definitely got a man with chops behind him. Yeah, so. couple. Or band, you said, not man. Band, yes, yeah. absolutely. All right, moving on to the third song. One word, Bly. Times I struggle to understand why The ancient proverbs like, who am I? Why am I here and what have I done? I see the answers, place my trust in you. Trust in you, love, be with you that's what I want you. That's what I need you to 
really like this song. I think I like side two a little bit more than side one. And this song in particular, it, I like that acoustic guitar riff that comes in. And then when they do go electric, you've got those George Harrison slides in there. Have y'all noticed that? That mm-hmm. it sounds very much like George Harrison, My Sweet Lord. I just don't know how guys this age wrote a song like this. This is the most mature sounding song on this album. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. It's chorus. remarkable yeah. that this these guys wrote this song. What's Demi Mon? Demi Mon? Half Earth? <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I think it has something to do with some hedonistic uh, way of life. Well, it's when a mommy and a daddy love each other very much. <laughs> they hug. And a mommy goes out of town and daddy misses mommy and has extra money in his bank account. <laughs> that, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. What was it? Demon um, and the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Yes. Some Twilight Zone is an American. Uh, well, there is a which, movie, but it's also a television yeah, series. It has Ron's. to be black and white. If you take it out of black and white, yeah, it's it completely doesn't. ruined. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's another one of my favorites. It's another highlight, full of highlights, but not very much like this one, just because of guitar work mainly. Yeah. It's just very intricate sounding, complicated. It's most. It's also extremely interesting. I, this song, I don't know if it's close to the top of my favorites but it's definitely one that grabs you when you listen to it because it's got so much going on for such a song on its surface seems so simple in some ways yeah and yet (laughs) and yet (laughs) all right moving on to the place i love Got a good beat, easy to dance to. Uh, <laughs> Is this American Bandstand? <laughs> exactly. I could see this being played on American Bandstand very easily. This would be a fun, fun song to see performed. Well, live, what do I y'all think. think he's talking about? Uh, I think he's. I think he's. I think he's talking about. There's some connection to the the UK. Yeah, I think it's. He's. We would call it a safe space now. Yeah. Yeah. Which. Yeah, I hate and but the place where he feels comfortable and good, most most grounded. Yeah, I love I love and we heard a little bit on that clip that that guitar riff that sixties kind of yeah I don't uh, it's so it's so great it is it sounds straight out of the sixties it does sound yeah. like something you would see a lot uh, of this album does, yeah it does but which is a compliment by yeah, the way it is and it, it, the guitar work is very good again on this one and. You know, he's he's a little bit of a chameleon on guitar. He can do a lot of different sort of styles. He doesn't take a lot of solos, you know, and I I I appreciate that because sometimes I think you can use solos as a crutch. Hey, we got to have a solo. We got to bring somebody in. Okay, let's do something interesting. On and, and it's... It's the opposite of the J.J. Kale thing where there's lots of room to do stuff. These songs are just, there's not... It's yeah. just, they're just what they are. They're these very contained little, right. These contained little... Blasts of energy, you yeah, know? and there's not really room for a long guitar solo. Because it, would, it would be out of place, absolutely. Yeah. But you could tell this guy could actually. All these guys, his, yeah, yeah, all of them. I, I wonder if that's not what he did more during his solo. All right, moving on to the fifth song, "A Bomb in Walder Street," which I think I should actually pronounce as "A Bomb in Walder Street." 
How appropriate that we were just talking about his guitar playing. <laughs> yeah, he's great guitar work on this one. And the, another a brief solo that you get to hear. He actually gets to take a solo on this one. I'm kind of fascinated with this song. I, I couldn't, you know, when I first started listening to him, I was going, are they talking about, you know, the IRA doing something? This is 1978. But then I started actually looking at the lyrics and it's really about having an atomic bomb in the middle of your street and what would happen if it goes off. And I mean, yeah, it's that trite thing. Hey, we're against nuclear war. And they even spell out, you know, apocalypse <clears throat> at the end of the song. Um, but I think it's one of the more imaginative songs about, you know, the apocalypse. Or So would you be mad if I told you that's not what the song's about? <laughs> no, I I'm would glad not. you're going to, so I don't have to. What? What is so it? So the reason it's called this is when the jam was going down to sign their contract at Polydor's head office, which is on Wardour Street, the street was closed down because they found an unexploded World War II munitions in the street. And so that inspired the title of it. But the song is actually about Paul Willard's disappointment in, in what punk wrought. Really? There's a quote. Yeah, there's a quote that I think is perfect. He says, it was a violent time. Every gig, there was a fight. He goes, I mentioned the Vortex in that song because that club had a particular horrible, heavy atmosphere. In my mind, I thought punk was going to be bringing kids together. I thought it was about uniting everybody, and it was for time for our revolution. Not necessarily political, but culturally and as a generation. But a lot of it's so effing wrong. It wasn't, it, it wasn't about cheap speed and pints of cider. I thought punk was supposed to take us out of that bullocks and lead us somewhere else. So that song came from my disappointment with all that. Really? Uh, yeah. But the... It talks about what if the bomb goes off and it, it goes through the city and... He's talking about that impact of that of that event. Huh. It's like an A-bomb then. It's like an A-bomb with radiation that uh, proceeds beyond the blast zone. Yeah. So, yeah, it is like but, an atomic bomb going off. That's an analogy. So, <laughs> so I, I want... This is one of the songs that I think is fascinating that a 20-year-old kid... It's kind of like what we talked about a bit with love and their disappointment in yeah. the hippie movement. Here's yeah. a guy who's 20, 20 years old, a year away from kind of the peak of the punk movement, looking at it and going, this is going nowhere. This is all violence. He's, he talked in an interview one time about how there was a fight at every show. At some point at one of their shows, he was going to have to stand back from the stage and watch a crowd of, of, of guys beat the crap out of each other. And he's like, that, that's not why I wanted to do this. Right. You know? So yeah. anyway, yeah. So again, it's uh, his insight for being as young as he, I sound like a broken record, but it's really, it's fascinating to me that he, he was thinking about this stuff at that yeah. age, you know? Yeah. I wonder what his parents did for a living. I don't know. But like I said earlier, I think his dad was a hell of a guy. Yeah. Sounds yeah. Like it. Well, like it. I've, I've seen his dad interviewed and he's in my top 10 people I'd like to have a beer with. Really? Oh yeah. He's, he's, a, well, unfortunately he's passed. Well, you, there's beer on the other side, Tony. <laughs> In heaven, there is no beer, Doug. That's why we drink it here. Yeah, that's nonsense. <laughs> All right. Some so papist mo- nonsense. <laughs> so, so, sorry, JM. For oh, no, 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 no. I, I just I was looking at the lyrics today, and I, I thought that seemed like it was describing an, an atomic bomb going off in the middle of the street. Which, um, which uh, That's bad also. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. The final song on this album, Down in the Tube Station. The Christ that he steps Repeat my own and reflect my thoughts Calling and inviting Partially naked Toffee rappers and the smallest papers Mr. Jones got run down Headlines of death and sorrow They tell of tomorrow Madman on the rampage And I'm down in a Tuesday at midnight so this was a single that was released before the LP came out. That had some um, success. Yeah, it hit number 15. And this is this is one of those songs that when people talk about the jam, they talk about this song having such an impact on them because of what it's about. You know, it's about this guy. I'm assuming, I mean, he doesn't say it in the song, but I'm assuming he's not British born. Uh, I'd say getting, probably Indian. Yeah, because he's, he's got, got curry, curry cooking curry. at home. Yeah, um, and he's getting—he just gets just savaged by a bunch of essentially a bunch of skinheads. <laughs> he says it's based on his paranoia of having to ride the, the okay. tube train and see what was going on. Well, this is the there. one. Which was this the one or the one before that he wanted to leave off the album? It was. It wasn't this. It was the. Uh, there was one. Oh, this one. If he wanted to leave uh, the one about English Rose off the album. No, he didn't want to. That wasn't the one. He There was one that he actually took the tape and threw it in the trash. Oh, that's right. That's right. He threw the, the, uh, he threw the lyrics away, and the uh, producer pulled it out and said... said yeah, you gotta, he didn't like the arrangement, and he just said, to hell with it, we're not doing it. And their producer said, no, you got to do it. Because he didn't like the way it was being arranged, he said. And I thought it was, was this that? song. Was it this song? Or, is either this song or the one before it? Anyway, we're getting away from it. The one thing I'll say about this, if you have any doubt about the nationality of this band this song is the most they sound the most british and cockney on on this song i think and i i I do think it's a very well done song so anyway i i think i think the bass line is remarkable yeah you Um, can get a little slap bass this was the song this was the song he threw the lyrics away and uh vicar copper or vic coppersmith pulled him out and said that the lyrics were good let's work on the arrangement and get it to the way we can get it off and it's it was that it ended up being their most successful single at the time yeah it got up to four right i'm I'm sorry sorry, what was that didn't it get up to four on the pop charts got up to 15 oh okay yeah there's one thing in the song where it they take his keys, and he's worried about them finding his wife. And question is, I think that when I first heard that, I'm like, wow, that's good. That's really good. But why would they know where he lived if they had just his keys? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't think maybe he's, again, as a character study, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, what you worry about when you're getting the, getting the crap knocked out of you isn't necessarily something that makes right. a whole lot of yeah. sense at the time. Well, uh, it is the idea of having to ride the subway home at midnight, when when you live in a culture where that's problematic, you got a bad culture. And well, and that and that in the UK in the in the it, from about seventy six to about I don't know what eighty one was pretty yeah <laughs> pretty, pretty was rough like right now yeah. in uh, New York all right Chicago <laughs> yeah. yeah Chicago all right so that's the last song on this album so yeah Tony you got anything else you want to say. Just that this was this was an album that made the band. This was a turning point album for the band. That, yeah, uh, he, when they were struggling with their second album, this album came out and critics loved it. It was album of the year all over the place. Yeah, it, best it, album of uh, the decade for some people. Yeah, yeah, and and it set them on a road to where they just started 
knocking out hit after hit after hit after hit. So this album hits number six in the UK. Their next album is number four. The album after that is number two. And their final album is number one. They just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then in 1982, Paul Weller decides he doesn't want to do this anymore. And he he basically disbands the band at the peak of their popularity yeah. in the UK. They were really hitting it. And and they were they were U two yeah. level yeah. famous in the UK. Well, you know, Not in the know, United States, but they were getting there. I, I don't know how I don't know how high they ever got in the United States. I, they I, got to number seventy their sound effects album got to number seventy two. Um, wow. So on the Billboard, yeah, the album got um, to seventy two. Did they have any singles that got higher? I that's you know entertainment I must have. Did we even talk about that's entertainment? Yeah, we did. I'm sure Tom called Malice got higher in seventy. Had to. Have. I mean, it was played all the time on YouTube. I mean, uh, on MTV. <laughs> did you have um, YouTube way back then? That's awesome. Do you know? Do you know who was who was opening for them on that last tour that they played? The Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> <laughs> All the tides, have, <laughs> the tides have turned. Yes, yes. blue oyster, blue oyster cult. No, it was big country. Oh, oh wow, wow, that would have been fantastic. That would have been a they, good show. Except um, that would have flipped the order. Uh, town, called, town called Malice hit number thirty-one on the U.S. mainstream Billboard charts. There you are. So I don't know if that was their top, their top charting single, but uh, it's got to be that's entertainment because there was a period there where I heard that everywhere. That, that sounds that, oh, that sounds moody blueses. It does. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we've come to the part of the program where we give our uh, ratings, reminding everyone who doesn't know, <laughs> or reminding everyone we ha- we give two ratings. We give our cold-hearted critics rating, where we uh, look at it as kind of academically. Is this a song that uh, should be put in the canon, or is this an album that should be put in the canon? And then we give our personal reviews, which uh, is just a little bit more heartfelt. And kind of the criteria is how often are we or how likely are we to actually listen to this album again? So I'm going to start with our host, Doug Cooper. I'm going to give a very simple answer this evening. My personal rating will be 4.5 and my critical rating will be 4.7. The reason my personal rating is lower is that these guys are singing in earnest and with great energy about things that aren't that important to me anymore. Separated from this album by age, when I was the same age as this album, I would have been more closely binded to it. But unfortunately, I was listening to sound effects and to snap. (laughs) So uh, I didn't. I didn't latch on to this album, unfortunately. All right. Well, thank you, Doug. I'll go next since I didn't pick this album. I'm going to go with my personal rating first. This album was a revelation to me. I knew Snap, uh, and I I think I knew Sound Effects. And I had not, like I'd said earlier, I I did not delve into the the, uh, jam like I probably should have based on what happened when the jam broke up. 
I mentioned that earlier. They, they became style counsel on it. Just went, okay, maybe that's how they, Paul Weller just wasn't doing anything that was interesting to me. But this album is just full of great guitar work. I love the harmonies. I love the vocals. I I, I love almost every song on this album. So I'm going to give it a, a four or five. The thing that I will knock it for a little bit is, yeah, sometimes the, the lyrics don't really connect with me, but I do think they're very clever. As a critic, it's going to be really hard for me to give it anything less than a four or five as well. I think that it sets out to do exactly what it wanted to do. And the fact that these guys were so young when they put this out is just even more incredible. I really wish that they had continued together. God knows what they could have done. And I really wish that they had not, never strayed too much from where they, they were with this album. But anyway, fantastic. Highly recommend this album. Critics rating 4.5, personal rating 4.5 as well. So now I'll turn it over to the picker, Tony. Hopefully it's I'm not a nose picker. Um, so I, I'm going to make this simple too. It's a 4.8, 4.8 for me. When we talked about doing the jam, I knew I was going to be the person that picked one of their albums. And I was I initially went to sound effects. That was the album I wanted to do. But then upon further reflection, I realized that this was probably more in my wheelhouse. As much as Sound Effects is a, I think, much more mature sounding album, this is this album is much more in my wheelhouse. And I I don't get all the all the negative stuff that this is a modern world gets because I think that's a fantastic album as well. But I think this album is just great. It's it straddles that line between power pop and punk really really well. Uh, I I think the lyrics are fascinating. I think there's a depth to them that I, I wasn't I didn't really think about until we started doing this album. Yeah, I just think it's great. So I think they set out what they're going to do. It's a groundbreaking album for the band. So critically a four eight, and then just personally, I will listen to this album. It's going to be hard not to listen to this album, and I've been listening to it for a while. Yeah. I never got sick of it. So. Yep, I never got one bit, and I discovered something new every time I listened to it. So thank you very much, Tony, for turning me on to this album. Great one. So that's our look at the Jams All Mod Cons. So we uh, that was an album from uh, my youth. So we like to try to stay relevant with the uh, with the youth that these days that were our age when the this youth album that came are out. actually youth. youth. Yeah, the youth that are actually youth. So Tony. We're going to turn it over to you. Do you got something that the kids might be turned on to? <laughs> well, every, every time you make you guys both make a big deal out of this being a kid's pick or something <laughs> modern, I go, I'm talking about an album that's almost 20 years old. Tonight. <laughs> oh, it's so, only 20 years old. Uh, 20 years. Yeah. That, it, it was released in 2003. My nephew it, was born then. Yeah. So. <laughs> it was, uh, it's a band at a, I believe out of New York called Mooney Suzuki. I discovered them, oddly enough, on the Little Stevens Underground Garage. Oh, no um, surprise. It, wow. it, it's, uh, this is an album called Electric Sweat, and it's great. It's full of energy. If you look at the album cover, it's, it's, you can tell exactly what it's going to sound like. There's lots of standout tracks on it, but I'm going to play one called In a Young Man's Mind. So that should give you a taste of what this album is like. Man, if you, put, so. yeah, if you put Paul Weller in there, it almost sounds well, like what we're listening I, to tonight. I, I, I do try. To, I, I think it's a little bit more uh, kind of garagey. Mm. Well, it's got a big, fat sound. Yeah. It does. 
But I, when I was listening, when I was trying to think of what I'd recommend, this band immediately came to mind. So all their albums are great. Their last album's a little bit different than their other. They put out five albums or other four, but Electric Sweat was their second album. The whole thing is just like the jam album, just a ball of energy. All right, Tony, thank you very much. So that brings us to the end of another episode of This Is Vinyl (laughs) Tap, the podcast where all the episodes go to 11. And if you like this episode, please visit the podcasting platform where you downloaded us and leave us a review, leave us some stars. We'd love to hear from you, find out what we're doing well, uh, what we're not doing so well, what you like, what you don't like. And you can even leave us some recommendations on albums we should be uh, looking at in the future. And if you're inclined, if you know someone who likes the long player format, please tell them about this podcast. We're uh, trying to reach as many people as we can. And you can leave us a message on our Twitter account at Tapping Vinyl, or you can visit our Facebook group page. But as always, for the ultimate This Is Vinyl Tap experience, please visit our webpage, tappingvinyl.com. There you can find links to past episodes, and you'll find all sorts of good stuff up there, uh, all sorts of extras, pictures, videos, outtakes of uh, songs, different versions of songs. Tony's been really working on it. He does a great job putting it together for us. So, uh, Go T! Way to go, Tony. And you can just find out all sorts of information about artists that we've profiled on this podcast. Next Cooper, our co-host Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. This is Final Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, let no bonds keep you from she, or he, or him, or her. Or they. Or they. <laughs> <laughs>